Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Uh, hey, we are celebrating this Advent season. I love the fact that we can think about joy. And uh, we as believers in Jesus, as Christians, should be some of the most joyous. We should be the most joyous people who live on planet Earth. Uh, we have had our sins forgiven. We've been given grace and mercy from God. And we have an intimate relationship with the God that created us. And so there's nothing that should be able to steal our joy, although uh, the circumstances in life and our enemy, the devil, tries to take our joy away. God has come through his son Jesus to give us infinite unlimited joy. Uh, and so this morning, we're talking about this first arrival of Jesus. And throughout this series that we're in called Journey to Christmas, we're looking at different people's journey to that very first Christmas morning when Jesus was born, when he came into earth as a child, a baby. And uh, last week, we talked about Mary, and we looked at the idea that Mary is someone who says yes to God, that when a circumstance comes up that's unforeseen to her, uh, she is not ashamed or unafraid in a moment to just say yes. And we talked about putting our yes on the table and saying, God, whatever it is, whatever circumstances you want in my life, whatever things you're orchestrating in my life, whatever you call me to do, I want to be the kind of person who says yes to do. And so when God asks us to do something, we step forward and do it, even when we don't fully know what God is doing. And speaking of not fully knowing what God is doing, this morning we're going to jump into the next story and talk about Mary's uh, betrothed husband, Joseph. Uh, and so we're going to look at Joseph, who does not have full knowledge of what's going on. Uh, one of the things that I appreciate the most about the Bible and that I think is so positive for us as Christians to see and understand is that God puts and includes all the messy stuff that's there. He doesn't leave anything out. He lets us see that he is working in the middle of a broken world through broken circumstances and in the lives of broken people to bring about and accomplish his will. And so with Joseph, we kind of get this idea that God puts some things and circumstances in his life that really challenge him. And we're going to find out this morning what it looks like to be people who don't just say yes to God, but learn to trust God. And so we have messy lives. Things don't always go according to plan. And because uh, of our experience in life and how messy things can be, we can look at scripture and we can look at stories like Joseph and we can identify fully with him. And so that's what I think God's going to ask us to do today uh, is to just identify with Joseph, see where we stand with some messy things in our lives, see where God might be asking us to trust him, and then take some steps of faith out in to this deep uh, unknown that sometimes God calls us into. So with that being said, if you will, turn to Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to look at a, a couple of verses to start, and then we'll finish the story as we get a little bit deeper into this. But if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, just to begin with. And here's what we read. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So here's where I want us to, to jump in initially with this. We don't know a great deal historically about Joseph, but we can mine quite a bit from this passage to pull out some things that we can gain a greater understanding and uh, respect for who Joseph is. Uh, we really only see Joseph in the birth narrative of Jesus. 
And then there's one other instance where Joseph kind of pops into the story for a minute. That's when Jesus uh, is about 12 years old. It's the time of the Passover feast, and Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the families and everybody travels to Jerusalem to go and celebrate Passover. And after the feast is over, they leave to start heading back home. And after a day's journey to get away from Jerusalem, Mary and Joseph camp for the night with the group that they're traveling with, and they start looking around and realize Jesus isn't with them. I don't know if you've ever lost a child before or not. And some of you might go, how in the world do you even know? How do you get a day's journey away and not realize that your son isn't with you? Uh, that's a great question. Um, but I think one of the answers is they would probably have been traveling in a caravan. I mean, with people, their family members, cousins, aunts, uncles, like they would have had a huge group of people from where they live to go to Jerusalem, travel together. It was the safest way to travel in this time is to travel in groups. And so they probably just assumed Jesus was with some other people and he was playing along the way and on the journey. And then they got to camp that night and realized, hey, he's not here. And so Mary and Joseph has to turn around and make haste to get back to Jerusalem and go and look for their son. Now, if you can just put yourself in the mindset, I don't know exactly what that journey looked like and the Bible doesn't tell us, but can you imagine? I mean, I know how, how things happen in my life when something crazy happens and how I start praying, God, you gotta help me figure this out and what am I gonna do? And is this gonna work right? Can you imagine being Mary and Joseph and the prayers you have to pray to God on this moment? Being like, uh, God, we lost your son, and we just need to get him back safe. Like, show us the way. Like, and if we can't, I don't know, maybe Joseph's going, if you have any other kids you can loan to us, like, whatever. That's not true. Um, actually, you know, that's probably blasphemous, and so I'm sorry about that. But <laughs> as we think about the story, we go, man, Joseph and Mary are going to find Jesus in Jerusalem. And Joseph's a part of this story, but then after that, he kind of disappears. It's almost as if we go, well, you know, we have to include Joseph in this story because we don't want to blame anything or pin anything on Mary, right? Like, she's the holy mother, and so we've got to leave her in that respect. So, But Joseph, Joseph's going to be the fall guy in this story, and then we don't see Joseph again. And so when we get to this, we find very few things that historically we know about Joseph. But as you read the text, as you read the story, there's some things that we can mine out. So I want to pull some things out that we can find out about Joseph here. Number one is Joseph was pledged to be married to Mary, right? And so as Joseph is in the middle of this story in Jewish culture, there were basically three stages or three elements of a marriage relationship. There was the engagement that took place first. This was typically something that was worked out between parents with their children, uh, to, to align or arrange someone that the, their son is going to marry. Uh, and it's not necessarily like arrangements that you might think of in marriage that we consider sometimes today. Uh, the Jewish kids, the children that were involved in this, or the, the man and the woman who were involved in this would have had a, a large say in who they were going to marry, but the parents then worked out the details. So there was the engagement. Hey, they're, they're going to be brought together and married. Then they would get into a period of time that was called betrothal. And the betrothal period was a time when people in the community looked at them as if they were married, but they weren't yet. There was no official ceremony. There was no consummation of the marriage. It was just the idea that they are so connected through their engagement that it is like they're married, right? And it's during this period that most often the husband would go off and would build a home for his wife, right? And so it might take up to a year, depending on the kind of house that they're going to uh, to have, or depending on the way that the father of the son uh, desires for the house to be accomplished. It's not until the father of the son who's going to be married gives approval and says, this is good. Now you're going to go back and get your wife. You're going to go and get your bride. 
And during this season, a period that could be up to a year, the bride is home waiting in anticipation and expectation of the day that her husband is going to come back and get her, not knowing when that time or hour is going to be. Right? And so you see these similarities in the marriages that take place in Israel and the things that we think about with God and Jesus and as we are the bride of Christ and that Jesus has come to win us. But after his death on the cross, he ascended back to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God and he's waiting for the day that the father will say, son, go get your children. And the hour and the time is unknown to us, but we're waiting in anticipation of that. It's the second advent that we're waiting for, right? Jesus has already come in his first advent. We are in a season of second advent waiting. And we're preparing ourselves and getting ourselves ready. And then the day would come when the groom would show up back in the town where his, his engaged, betrothed wife was waiting. And then the marriage would take place. And the marriage ceremony and the consummation of the marriage. And so all of these things were part of the Jewish engagement. So as we think and as, as we read this story this morning, I think it's really plausible and possible, although it's not spelled out, that this is during the betrothal period. That the angel comes to Mary and says, Mary, you're going to have a child. He's going to be the son of the Most High. And you're going to raise the Son of God who's going to pay for the sins of the world. And while Mary's getting that bit of information, Joseph is off in another location preparing their home. And Joseph doesn't have these details. He doesn't have this part of the story. And there's a chance that Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant without having even seen her or been in relationship with her for a while. That there's not been communication. He's been off doing his responsibility to build the home and prepare the place for them. And somehow through the grapevine, if you read the text again, it says um, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant. Or some translations might say it was discovered that she was pregnant, right? So Joseph has this discovery, and he's not even there. Can you imagine what starts to go through his mind? He's off preparing a place that he's going to live with his wife. He's been working for weeks or months to get this house ready for this girl that he's in love with that he's going to bring in to be his bride. And he finds out that she's pregnant. And all of a sudden, the wheels start turning in his head. How am I going to deal with this? Picture yourself working like that and then finding out a news that's disappointing. It wasn't the way that things were supposed to work out. And unlike us, Joseph doesn't know the full story. We've read Luke's gospel account. We know that the work that's being done of the pregnancy of Mary is by the Holy Spirit and that this is a supernatural act and God is moving and God is at work. Joseph doesn't know any of that. Joseph just gets news, your fiance is pregnant and that's all he has to go on. And so now he has to wrestle with what to do in response. And it's likely that if this happened to one of us, we would do damage control by trying to control the narrative. Like, I don't know where you would find yourself, but maybe you've been in a relationship that blew up. Maybe you had a marriage that dissolved. Maybe you've been in a work relationship that, uh, that you got fired from a job. And, and all of a sudden, what do you try to do? You want to get in front of the story and you want to put your narrative out there. This is what happened. It wasn't my fault. I did everything right. It was her. It was him. The company that I work for is crazy. My boss is an idiot. Like none of those people know what they're doing. I was doing everything right. It was their mistake. It was their fault. I'm going to get out in front of this and control the narrative. And a lot of us would probably act in that way. But what we find from Joseph is that he doesn't do that. 
Joseph doesn't try to get in front of the narrative to control it. He starts to contemplate and think, how do I handle this? What's my responsibility? And here's where we find the next couple of things that I want us to know about Joseph this morning. Number one is this. Joseph was faithful to the law, but he was full of grace. We're even told in verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, yet he did not want to expose her publicly to disgrace. So he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So Matthew tells us Joseph wrestled over this decision because he was a faithful man to the law. He knew what the law could require. And in this culture, what the law would require of an unwed woman who becomes pregnant is that she would be killed, stoned to death. And Joseph knows that's a reality. And he could get in front of the narrative and say, oh yeah, she's done this terrible thing and look what happened and I want to just take care of her and let's publicly humiliate her. Let's even kill her. But Joseph starts to wrestle with this, and though he's faithful to the law, it says he doesn't want to do anything to bring disgrace to his wife. Joseph's faithful to the law, but he acts in grace. And he says, I'm just going to take this step to put her away quietly and to divorce her quietly, right? To step out of this relationship, but to do it in a way that doesn't harm her, that doesn't injure her, that doesn't damage her. I'm going to bow out gracefully. And I'm just going to let her move on to the next stage of life. And so Joseph has this moment where he's full of grace. And that's the actual, the next step that I want us to see. Joseph is able to take his pain and find a way to show grace. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who is known as the Prince of Preachers, once said this. He said, when we have to do a severe thing, let us choose the tenderest manner. And maybe we shall not have to do it at all. He says, when there is something severe that has to take place, what's the graceful way, the most tender way to approach that? And maybe as we think about not how to get retribution or take harsh punishment toward people, but to back out of things with grace, maybe God will work things out to where we don't have to deal with it at all. And so we see this taking place in Joseph's life because it's not until after Joseph makes this painful decision that God decides to pull him into the bigger narrative. Look at the next part of the passage, verse 20. It says, but after he had considered this, after he had thought about divorcing Mary quietly, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son And you are to name him and give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up from the dream, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and he took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate the marriage until she had given birth to a son and gave him the name Jesus. Now, I have to be honest with you. I don't know why God didn't choose to give Joseph the heads up on this whole story, right? Like Mary gets a heads up. Hey, you're going to become pregnant. An angel shows up before anything ever happens. This is what's going to happen. This is the narrative. This is what God's doing. You need to know the story. Joseph gets nothing, right? It's like, God, why? Why did you keep Joseph in the dark? Like, this seems like the kind of information that we would want both parties on that Zoom call to make them aware of what's taking place, right? And so we're going, I need you to both be included in this. Mary gets the story. Joseph doesn't. Why? What is God doing? And I think the way that I've approached this is that I want to understand, and I think Joseph would understand, can I trust God no matter what comes at me in life? 
And I think that's the thing that God is doing in Joseph's life is I want to put you through the grinder a little bit, Joseph. I want to put you in a place where something hard happens. I want to see how you're going to respond. And I want you to act in faith and I want you to trust me. Joseph, I want you to know that I am weaving a bigger story. The narrative of this whole thing, you don't have to get out in front and control the narrative because I'm in charge of the narrative. It's my story. I'm at work to redeem my people. I'm doing the work here, Joseph, but I need you to learn to trust me because some other things are going to come up in Joseph's life that God's going to ask him to trust him immediately. Like after Jesus is born, do you remember the story? The Magi come, Jesus is around two years old and they come to worship him and bring their gifts to him. And then Herod has found out that the child that's been born is the king of the Jews and wants to kill him. And in the night, another dream that Joseph has says, get up and take Mary and the child and escape to Egypt. Like there is this moment, you've got to do this now. Joseph, do you trust me? Get up and leave, go. Get out of Israel. Joseph's got to be a guy who's going to trust Jesus. And so here's the question for us too, right? Do I trust God no matter what twists and turns my story takes? Am I the kind of person who no matter what comes up in life, no matter what twist my story takes, no matter what turn that I find myself in, I'm willing to say, I will trust God no matter what. That's the kind of person that God's looking for as we learn to follow him. And one of the things as we grow in our faith as disciples of Jesus that we learn to do is that we try to figure out and understand that God doesn't do things our way. In fact, if you look at Isaiah chapter 55, verse eight, it says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Right? Like life gets a lot easier for us as Christians when we get to a place where we understand this concept. God doesn't do things the way that you do things. God doesn't even think the way that you think. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. And when we can come to a place as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, that we take a knee to Jesus and bow before him and say, no matter what, I trust you. Even when I don't understand what you're doing, even when it doesn't make sense to me, even when it's not what I would do or what I would want or how I would write the story, if you put me in the middle of a circumstance and situation, I'll trust you because your ways are higher than mine. And I want to be a part of your story. And I want to trust you no matter what. Now, I don't know what some of you are going through right now. And I don't know what twists and turns you have coming into your life. But at some point, you're going to be asked to trust God no matter what. And you're going to be asked to go into some circumstances in life that you never planned for yourself, that you never foresaw coming, that you would never wish on yourself or anyone else for that matter. And you're still going to have to be in a place where you say, God, I don't like this, but I trust your story. And I'm just going to say yes to you, no matter what. And God's looking for us to respond to him in that way. And here's what we need to understand as we read this passage. Three things that we see here about God. Number one is that he's sovereign. Number two is that he's in control. And number three, that he's good. He's good. And so as we read this and we look back again at this passage in Matthew chapter one, here's what we find. It says, but after Joseph had considered divorcing Mary, after he considered all of this, 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And he took Mary home as his wife. So here's the first thing again that we see God is sovereign. The things that are happening in Mary's life and those things that are impacting Joseph are ordained by God and they are the results of the Holy Spirit. And the angel says, all of this has come because God is working and the Holy Spirit is active in this to make the reality of what Mary's going through and what you're now wrestling with and finding out about. You can trust God because he is sovereign. This is his plan. And he's actively at work in it. And then that takes us to number two, that God is in control. And it said in verse 23, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they'll call him Emmanuel. That was a prophecy from Isaiah that was thousands of years old or hundreds and hundreds of years old. And when we see that, we go, God's in control. He's been working. And the pregnancy that Mary has is the culmination of the story that started in the Garden of Eden. Whether you realize it or not, Christmas began at creation. And the things that God did in that moment of creating a womb in a woman and creating things like an umbilical cord, creating things like an egg and a sperm, like all of the things that were necessary to bring his son into the world, God implemented those things at creation. He started the ball rolling at that very moment that this would be a reality. He's in control. And when you have prophecies all throughout the Old Testament that look forward to a Messiah, that pinpoint the Messiah, that he's going to be born in Bethlehem, that he's going to be of the tribe of Judah, that he's going to live in the house of David, that he's going to be the king who reigns forever. All of these things that were said are completely fulfilled in the person of Jesus. This is the culminating work of God for thousands of years. God's in control. He's working his story out to this very moment for Joseph. He's in control. And then the third thing that we see is that he's good. And we see that in the two names that the angel gives to Joseph about his son. Hey, Mary's going to have a son, and you're to call him Jesus. In the Hebrew, that's Yeshua. They don't have J's in Hebrew, so it's Yeshua. And Yeshua means the salvation of Yahweh. And the angel says he's going to be the one who comes to save his people from their sins. That he's going to be the answer to the problem that our world has. What about our sin nature? What about our disconnection from God because of who we are? He says, this is the one that's been prophesied about. He's Jesus, the savior of the world. And then the second name that the angel says is going to happen with Jesus. He says, they're going to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because God is good. He comes to live and dwell among us. This makes Christianity different from every other world religion. Like every other world religion says, you have to try, you have to work, you have to find a way to get from where you are to where God is, and it's about your efforts to get to him because he's not coming to you. And Christianity says, God left his throne in heaven and took on flesh and was given birth in a stable to identify with us, to come and be with us, to be a part of our lives, to experience everything that we experience and to have grace toward us that he expresses in his death on the cross. And so when we see this, we just see the goodness of God. He's so good. 
And when we think about that, I love how John 1 uh, writes this. In, in John 1, 14, in the message version of the Bible, it says this, the word became flesh and blood, and he moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish, right? And so God's goodness is displayed in his willingness to leave the glory of heaven in order to come to this earth and to be with us. And so our journey to Christmas is like Joseph's journey, that it requires trust. That are we going to say, I want to know what God is like. I want to experience that he's good so I can trust him. I want to know how to walk in favor with him and in faith with him. My boys and I, on the way to school this week, were doing our devotional time in the, in the truck on the way driving in, and we came across a verse from Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42.3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not stuff, snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. And I love the imagery of this because, again, as Jesus is prophesied about from the Old Testament till now, it says that he's not going to be someone who comes harshly to punish and bring pain and suffering and anguish on people. In fact, when you think about John 3, what do we hear? The most famous verse in all of the Bible for most of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that no one would perish, but that all would have eternal life. And then John 17, 317 says, for the son of man didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's why he's come. And so when we think about Isaiah, it says a bruised reed, he will not break. If you think about something that's pretty simple that you could just take in the, between the thumb and finger of your hand and snap it, I think there's a picture. Uh, these are types of reeds. Um, we used to tell my nephew Ethan that uh, those were where, how they grew corn dogs. And so there's a big batch of corn dogs growing right at the corner of the Interstate 26 and 93 down here if you go down. And, uh, and so you can just go and find them. I don't you know, think that you should eat them, but that's what we told him. And he loved that story and he believed it for a while. And so, but if you take one of those reeds and you just hold it in your hand, you could easily just snap it. And especially if one's already kind of got a bend to it or is a little bit broken. And, and Isaiah says, listen, that's not what the Messiah is going to be like. A bruised reed, he will not break. And a smoldering wick, he's not going to snuff it out. In fact, you could take a lighter, and I played with this this week. I'm going to try this, and if it doesn't work, you guys are just going to have to forgive me because I've debated all week long if I should do this or not, but we're going to try it today. If you take a wick that's burning like this and you blow it out, it's still smoldering. There's still going to be a little bit of the hot ember that's left there. And the reality is that if you get a flame even just close to that again, it will reignite. You don't even have to touch the wick for it to reignite. You just have to get the flame close. And so I want to see if I can pull this off this morning. First, we're going to make sure this works. Here we go. And that flame is there. And is the, I don't even have to touch it. It just reignites as it gets close. And that's what Jesus has come to do. Not to destroy those who are bruised and hurt, but to bring comfort. Not to snuff out your wick when you're just smoldering, when you feel like you can't go on, but to reignite. To say, I'm going to bring life back to you. I'm going to take that which is just barely holding on, and I'm going to give it hope. And I'm going to take you from a place of pain and desperation to a place of immense enjoyment through my son, Jesus. That's what the Messiah has come to do. 
He's sovereign and he's in control and he's good. Therefore, you can trust him. And so that's where I want us to close this morning. I'm going to invite Phil to come back up. And I just want to ask you that same question that Joseph would have had to be posed with. Our journey to Christmas requires trust. We have to trust that God's in control. We have to trust that he's sovereign over all things. And we have to trust that he's good. So the question for you this morning is, where do you need to trust him? Where right now are you experiencing a twist or turn in your story? The narrative isn't going like you would have written it. Things are a little off. You're in a position where you're not finding joy right now because life is hard and difficult and challenging. And you're having to lean in and go, God, I'm just still going to trust you. Maybe it's in your finances. Maybe it's in your faith. Maybe it's in issues of health. It could be in relationships that you're dealing with. There could be so many things right now for you in your story that you're having to figure out how to trust God through it all. And the powerful news of the gospel is that because Jesus came, because Emmanuel is with us, And because when Jesus left earth to go back to heaven, he didn't leave us alone then either. He sent his spirit to live inside of us and to take residence in us. That we no longer have Jesus physically walking on earth, but we have the spirit of God. We have the spirit of Jesus himself living inside of us. The Bible says that the same spirit who brought Jesus back from the grave lives in us and empowers us so that we can walk in faith and trust in him. And so that's the call for us this morning, just to think and to take a few minutes of reflection before we sing this last song and just say, God, where do I need to trust you? And it's pretty likely that something's already jumped into your mind. You don't have to think a whole lot about it because you're going, I know the scenario, God. I know the situation. I know where the pain point is. I know where I'm experiencing brokenness. I know where there's loss. I know where there's frustration. But instead of blaming you for the things that are happening in my life and trying to control the narrative and say, God's not good and I want to be in control and he did this and it's against me, I'm going to say, God, you're good no matter what. And I can trust you no matter what. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you were challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.